Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where we aim to help you increase your charity's income and impact by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. We love to hear from you, so please do continue leaving reviews on your podcast players and engaging with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. We can find both the podcast and me, Alex Blake. I'm particularly keen to hear what your favourite bits of the episode are, any questions or thoughts you have, any feedback you have for me. So please do get in touch online. I hope to hear from you soon. So I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host, and I'm joined today by Jenny Cashman-Wilson, who is founder and CEO of the Abram Wilson Foundation, a charity that inspires, connects and opens doors to the music industry so that minoritised young people have an equal chance to realise their creative potential. We go talk through some of Jenny's story from why she started the charity around 10 years or so ago through to today, and unpicking some of the learning around leading a charity along the way. So welcome to the podcast, Jenny. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm in a good mood. Good. <laughs> which is great. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. And Welcome to your four-legged friends next to you there, who may or may not make an appearance on the podcast. I'm hoping that she won't. So yeah, I'm just at home today. So as long as no one knocks on the door, then we'll we'll be fine. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> cool. So where shall we start? Let's start at the beginning, shall we? What what was the sort of story that led to starting the charity? Yeah. So it's kind of a the reason why I started it is it's a sad story, but I think it's also a really joyful one in terms of turning something really tragic and awful into something good. So the charity is called the Abram Wilson Charity. And the reason it's called that is because it's named after a man called Abram Wilson. And he was my husband. And Gosh, where do I start? So basically, the short version is Abram was a jazz musician from New Orleans. He made his home in the UK for the last, what what ended up being the last 10 years of his life. We were in the middle of a 20-day tour. He was kind of rapidly becoming quite unwell and was in a lot of pain during that tour. We ended up having to cut it short. We went to A&E. And he never left the hospital. And two weeks later, he died from cancer. So that's the kind of short version. And sort of, I suppose, the like missing pieces are kind of connected to like how I met him and, you know, why we in Inverted Commas were on a 28 tour. And so I was basically working with him at that time. I'd met him in 2009 at an organization called Tomorrow's Warriors, where he was the assistant artistic director. He was also signed to their sister company, which was a label at the time. It's, it, it no longer exists, but at the time it was quite a big independent label um, in the UK jazz scene. And Tomorrow's Warriors is still going. It's, it's a music jazz music education organization. And I met him there and we, we were there for about 18 months together, working together. And we got together during that time. And then we left around this around the same period and I basically started to kind of help him with his career whilst doing a full-time job as head of fundraising at the National Centre for Circus Arts, which is based in Shoreditch in London. And it just kind of snowballed. And so from sort of May 2011, April, May 2011, right through to when he passed away the following year in 2012, things just kind of got 
busier and busier and busier and busier and busier. And I basically became like his manager, his agent, his bookkeeper, his assistant, his comms person, like you name it. And I was doing it. And I booked us this 20-day tour amongst other things. And that was the tour which had to be kind of cut short. So when he passed away, it was we didn't know he had cancer. We thought that the kind of stomach pains were related to kind of stress. He'd been through a really kind of horrific incident with the police in March 2012. And we kind of thought it was connected to that um, because he was really traumatized by that. And he didn't. I should probably also point point out for those who are listening and have never heard of this person. He he was African-American and it kind of stopped him from going outside. He, he wasn't comfortable going outside as much anymore. And so we thought that the stomach pains were related to that incident. As it turned out, it wasn't. It was related to bowel cancer. So it was really sudden, you know, the, the way it all happened. It was all very fast. We didn't get the formal diagnosis until three days before he passed away. And then we decided during that week that we were going to get married because his whole family flew over. Um, his immediate family flew over from the States. Quite a big family. He was the eldest of six. So all of his siblings, five siblings came over and his mum and dad a couple of well three of them work in the medical profession one of them is a neurosurgeon and so they were able to get the scans and they knew what was happening before I did and that's why they all came over as quickly as they did so we were all together his family were there my family were there my very close friends were around supporting me during that time in the hospital and we decided to get married when we realized kind of what was happening and that ended up being the day before he passed away in the hospital and it was a really beautiful ceremony and the nurses kind of decorated this room for us fairy lights and people brought flowers and it was really sweet it was yeah but we we ended up getting married like six o'clock in the evening on the 8th of June and then he passed away about half past two on Saturday the 9th of June that period was just yeah as I'm sure people can imagine was really traumatic as I've said before and it just felt like the rug had been pulled under my feet because he had become one of my best friends he was the person I lived with he was my business partner I was planning to leave my job and work for him full-time we had all these kind of plans and ambitions and suddenly all of that disappeared in an instant and I had to start again that's how the charity was born really I was just like been working so hard especially over the last year he had so much more to give and that is something that he said before he died you know that he still had so much more to give he was an extraordinary musician I think I still haven't really met anybody like him and I've been working with musicians and specifically jazz musicians for like 15 years now and you know don't get me wrong I've met some incredible musicians and some really brilliant educators but Abram was was very unique because he could, not only was he was an extraordinary trumpet player, he was also classically trained. He was a really inspiring educator. He had so much experience educating all kinds of different ages and abilities and backgrounds. And, you know, you could literally put him in a room with anyone of any age, of any background, of any ability, and he would be able to inspire them and teach music to them. And he was such a great performer. He was such a great storyteller. And, and I just was like, you know, he'd inspired so many people along the way. I just thought, I don't want to 
just let that fizzle out you know there's there's something here there's something important here that I think could be carried on in terms of the values that we both held and the kind of person and the kind of musician that he was because he was so much about giving back he was so much about passing on his skills and expertise and knowledge to the next generation he was really talented at bringing in younger jazz musicians and into his band and basically mentoring them and so they were playing you know really quite hard music very inexperienced and he would be able to kind of mold them and mentor them to the way that he kind of needed them to play it was always amazing to see so so that's kind of how it started and we already had a kickstarter campaign that was ready to go to raise funds for a new album he wanted to self-release a new album and so I just kind of sort of fiddled around with that a little bit and changed some of the wording and used that as the kind of platform to raise funds for the start of the charity. And then I also, so the funeral was in Mississippi and which is where his the dad his dad's side of the family is from. And then when I came back, I organised a big memorial service um, along the South Bank in London up to... St John's Church which is opposite the IMAX cinema was an amazing day and we kind of we also used that as a bit of a fundraiser as well because the sort of fundraising hat sort of came into play a little bit and she was just like this is an opportunity because you know Abram was a public figure within the the jazz community and a lot of you know he'd been around in this country for a decade and a lot of people there was a real outpouring of kind of love and sadness at his passing and it was a really great opportunity to to raise some funds and use that to kind of start the charity so that's how it kind of all began right so yeah it sounds like the sort of objects of the charity were almost like it was obvious what it needed to be from Owen's life and, and experience that so it was going to be about music education and supporting young people who didn't have the sort of opportunities to get into the industry and then yeah having that that sort of pre-existing like fan base there to help with some of that initial fundraising presumably helped to kind of get things started so you had a little bit of that that sort of initial funding in place yeah we did but I would say that although as hindsight's a great thing right because we're kind of sat here 11 years on going well yes I mean it was completely obvious what you were going to be doing (laughs) but at the time it was actually really hard to figure it out I mean it literally took years because I had so many ideas for what it could be and what we could do and how big it could become it was hard to see the wood for the trees a lot of the time and then the other kind of issue was that I didn't have Abram with me to bounce ideas off and so you know he was the one right that would kind of that I would you know, I'd be behind the scenes and I would sort of wheel him out. Or I mean, I didn't need to wheel him out because he was <laughs> very happy going out on his own and being the kind of star of the show. Like literally I'd be like, okay, cool. We've got this workshop opportunity or we've got this project opportunity or this is happening, blah, blah, blah. And, he, and he'd just go off and he'd do it. And there wouldn't need to be a huge amount of discussion around it. Whereas with the charity, like I had to figure that out and I had to bring in all these other people to help me figure it out because I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be able to do it by myself, which I think is a really, you know, if I was going to sort of speak to anybody who was thinking about starting something from scratch, 
I'd be like, ask for help. Use your network and ask for help. Ask for advice. People love giving advice. I think any fundraisers listening know that it's much easier to ask people for advice than it is to ask for money when you're starting a relationship. And then obviously that can kind of lead to funding kind of later, you know, later down the line. Not always, but I think if you're feeling a little bit kind of awkward about asking for money, which I did for a long time, by the way, despite having experience in fundraising, I always found asking for help was 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 a good sort of way in. And I always felt more comfortable doing that to start with. Yeah, yeah. It often comes up that old um, fundraising saying of ask for money and get advice, ask for advice and get money. Yes, well, it served me well because I I just found it so cringe. My experience was mainly in writing grant applications and I felt really, I felt very awkward about talking to individuals directly about money and asking them for money. And that was something that I really had to work on. I had to really work on figuring out why that was and then kind of slowly but surely like practicing that muscle of like asking individuals for money, for donations, as opposed to sort of beating around the bush and having a nice cup of tea and asking them all about themselves and what they're doing, what they're getting on with, and then never actually going. And also, are you okay to like continue supporting or could you support or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. And so how did you go from having that sort of initial idea of what the concept of the charity was going to be to working out like what the, like how to deliver those things? So it sounds like you had an idea of what you want to achieve in terms of helping young people. But yeah, like how did you come up with the idea of going into schools and doing workshops and doing the different programs you end up ended up doing? And yeah, like who did you go to for some of that advice? Was were they people that you got on board as trustees, or like how quickly did you bring people on board in terms of your team of staff or freelancers that were actually doing some of the work with you? Yeah, it was a slow burn. I'd say I was like kind of in startup mode with me just kind of doing it by myself with some kind of support around me in terms of trustees and advisors for for quite a few years. So I'm just sort of thinking back. So for the first the first three and a half years, I I I just did it for free. I didn't get paid. And I sort of got a bit of funding. What did I get a bit of funding for? Uh, oh yeah, that was it. So so basically 2012, Avon passed away. 2013, I realized I can't, I can't do this by myself. I need to get help. I got in touch with a consultant who I'd met through Tomorrow's Warriors, the jazz education organization that Abram and I work for. He was called Andrew Missingham and was kind of one of the first like floor leadership fellows. So I got in touch with him and I was like, would you be able to help me figure out what this thing is going to be? Because I can't do this on my own. I also recruited my first ever coach in 2013 as well. So because I just needed a cheerleader. I needed somebody that I could bounce ideas off. I need someone who could hold space for me. I didn't really know that much about coaching at the time, but one of my friends suggested it and put me in touch with this woman called Ruth Fraser. And so by the end of the first year, we'd had, me and this consultant, Andrew Missingham, had had this roundtable discussion where we sort of had sessions together and then we built we built up towards this roundtable discussion that was three hours 
we brought together, you know, half of my contacts and half of his contacts. And it was really to just kind of like bounce around the ideas that Andrew and I had had around what the charity should be doing and what it should be focusing on. And we had the director of the um, Gerwood Foundation, um, Charitable Foundation there at the time, Nitin Sawney was there, a senior partner at a legal firm called Clinton's was there. One of the directors at Sirius, who's since passed away, John Cummings, was there. Our trustees were there. You know, the um, exec director of Berkeley College of Music in Valencia was there. You know, it was a lot of like really interesting, experienced people working in the arts and the creative industries that we were able to bring together. And a number of those people are still involved in the charity. So Nit and Sawney is still our patron. Um, Tom Fredericks is still our pro bono legal advisor. So... That was 2013. 2014, we got our first little grant, it was 10K grant from the Jawa Charitable Foundation to develop this theatre, jazz theatre project that Abram and I had been working on with a director called Pia Furtado at the time. We got some Arts Council funding before he passed away and we'd done some R&D work with it. So we basically got into a space, like a rehearsal space and workshops these ideas for a couple of weeks so we got some more funding to do that so that was kind of like the first project I also booked a tour at the end of 2013 with Abrams kind of band his rhythm section who were all young guys and then some sort of bigger names including a friend of Abrams from the states who's a tenor saxophonist called Keith Loftus and then a sort of kind of well-known saxophonist in the in the jazz community called, called Jean Toussaint in this country. We did a big London jazz festival gig as well at the end of 2013. So 2013, 2014, it was kind of more creative stuff, more kind of almost kind of finishing what we'd started with Abram in terms of the kind of, yeah, sort of professional performance, music, making things uh, side of side of stuff. And then 2015 was when we got our first grant to deliver our first education pilot. That was also the year that I got fired from my job. (laughs) And at the same time, got a 10K grant, which was a core grant from the Waits Foundation. One of our trustees had an an in there. And I'd been working with their uh, grants advisor for about a year. And they basically agreed to to give us 10k which we could spend on anything and it coincided with me getting fired and the reason I got fired I was working for this music festival I won't say which one and the person who owned the music festival who was the director I think was getting a bit paranoid about the fact that I was working with them to set up a charitable arm of their festival whilst also working on uh, the Abram Wilson charity stuff and she knew that going in obviously I wasn't ever planning to like mix the two but I think she felt uncomfortable with it and just basically decided that she didn't want me to work for her anymore so I got a bit blindsided because I I thought it was going quite well but anyway it turned out to be the best thing ever and I am so grateful to her for firing me because I remember I'd had a week off work we'd had done the festival I'd had a week off work and it was the day for me to go back into work and I was just like I was getting ready in the morning and I was like oh my god like how am I going to do this because by this point I'd left the National Centre for Circus Arts I'd started working for this festival it was a part-time job I was getting paid the same amount of money as I was for being head of fundraising full-time at the National Centre for Circus Arts and I was like great instead of just like fitting the Abel Wilson charity into my free time like first thing in the morning last thing at night and weekends I'll have like four full days out of seven where I can do Abram Wilson charity stuff and then three days where I work on 
the festival stuff. I was, you know, in my early 30s at the time. So I had a lot of energy and I was, you know, and I had a lot of grief as well. So that also drove me. And I would definitely say to my younger self, like, you can't work seven days a week. Like, you just can't. You need to have a break and you need to take weekends. And that did happen eventually. But yeah, not before quite a few burnouts. So I was, you know, getting ready to go into work and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this because the, the work with the festival is, is getting bigger and bigger. Like it's actually starting to become something, this charitable arm. And we've got some big applications that we need to submit. And at the same time, things are getting bigger with the charity. So I was like, I don't know, I just don't, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I really don't. So anyway, my problems were solved because I went into work that morning and she fired me (laughs) and basically (laughs) told me not to work my notice period. And I had to hand over the keys. She wouldn't let me say goodbye to anyone that I was working with because we shared an office and everyone else was upstairs. And the office was really close to where I was living at the time. So (laughs) it was so close that that the people that I was living with I moved out of my flat that I shared with Abram and I moved in with friends after he passed away hadn't gone to work yet (laughs) so they were like didn't you just go to work and I was like yeah but I think I just got fired (laughs) so I had no laptop other than Abram's laptop which was old and clunky and just really in need of like a replacement and I hadn't bothered getting a replacement because I'd had a laptop at the National Centre for Circus Arts and I'd had a laptop at Greenmount Festival which I was allowed to take home so I just would use that when I was doing Abram Wilson stuff so yeah I had to order a new laptop I basically decided to like take a punt on myself I was pretty certain that the grant was going to come through from the Waits Foundation but I didn't know 100% so I had this month of just being like is it going to come in? Is it not going to come in? Which was really stressful. But I was like, well, either I do that and I just do what I really want to do, which is focus on a charity and just give it everything. Or I spend the next month trying to find jobs. So I did the former. Fortunately, the grant came through. Yeah, it's a tough one to work out, isn't it? I think for anyone that's either started their own organisation or even just going freelance and or doing creative work, like it's so difficult to know. Do you... Yeah, do you kind of keep your one toe in each, like having a job and doing it on the side, but you kind of want to spend more time on it? But then if you just jump ship completely and go for it, like are you you're going to end up just having no money and being on the streets and things? So, yeah, it's definitely a, one that people will recognise, anyone who's kind of started their own thing. That was one of the hardest things that I had to figure out was how to manage that anxiety because – we still 11 years on not a charity that gets regular multi-year grants right we don't get arts council npo money we don't get a big fat grant from the esme fairbairn foundation each year or paul hamlin whatever we've always sort of the majority of our income has always come from one-off project grants so the money came the grant was successful and i had a little bit of money from the festival that i was working for And so I basically, my expenses were really low at the time. My rent was super, super cheap, which is part of the reason why I moved into this place because I was like, okay, well, this is, we were really central, but it was really cheap. And I was like, okay, well, this means that I don't have such a big outgoing when it comes to where I'm living, which will give me a bit more flexibility in terms of 
how much money I need to bring in whilst I get this thing going. So that was actually really helpful. So I was like, I reckon I could probably eke out six months with this money. So I'll give it six months. And if I can't make it work in six months, then I'll have to just call time on it and do something else. So that was obviously back in 2015. It's now 2023. A lot's happened since then. And I managed to kind of keep it going. But what I realized was that the anxiety that I was kind of experiencing every day around cash flow and where that money was going to come from was stopping me from growing the organization. So after about 15 months, I recognized and actually I did, I I went to some, I think I went to some like creative workshop, which was, which was basically there to kind of, I went to this creative education workshop, which was sort of focused on giving ideas around how to deliver kind of education programs, you know, making them more fun and more interactive and games and that sort of thing. And, and one of the things that we did on this workshop or as part of this workshop was journaling. And they were like, this is something that you could kind of do as a practice. I hadn't read the book, The Artist's Way at that point. That came like a few years down the line. But for anyone who's interested in igniting their creative practice, The Artist's Way is a really, really good book to check out. It's by a woman called Julia Cameron. And one of the things that she recommends is journaling and sort of doing that as the first thing that you do when you wake up and a sort of free writing for like 20 minutes, three pages, whatever. So I ended up doing that for three months. And then I went back over the notes. And what I realized, that's when the penny dropped. And I was like, whoa, I have literally been worrying about cash flow every single day for the last three months. And not just the last three months, the last 15 months. And like, this is not a way to be. Like, I'm just going to completely burn myself out through like anxiety about money if I don't sort this out. And then I think, you know, things sort of kind of come your way when you need them often. And a friend of mine recommended this online kind of slightly eccentric, very creative Australian coach who sort of had a, a passive income business. So she sells lots of little courses online. She's called Leonie Dawson and she also sells these workbooks. So she recommended doing the workbook. And in the workbook was a whole section on money. And in there was some recommendations of like people that you could check out and books that you could read. And one of them, they were all quite like, I don't know, the barefoot investor. And I'm trying to think, but, you know, sort of kind of slightly icky titles. And then there was this one title that was Get Rich Lucky Bitch by this woman called Denise Stuffield Thomas. And it really stood out. And I was like, who's this chick? So I shouldn't say that, should I? I always tell my boyfriend off for using the word chick. I'm like, please don't refer to us as small little birds. (laughs) Um, But I was like, who's this woman? Anyway, I ended up buying her course. She's got one one main course that she promotes as opposed to what Leonie Dawson does, which is like lots of little ones at more affordable prices. But I went all in with Denise Stuffield Thomas. She was doing an affiliate promotion at the time. So I got her course and another course by this woman called Marie Folio. But it was the money mindset course that just completely changed my life. And just to kind of put it into context, after doing that course, I tripled my charity's turnover in two years. So it really helped to kind of unlock some things. And help me to understand like why I was the way I was around money. And she she calls it mindset, your mindset around money. 
um, I was really able to kind of get to grips with that and unpick that and start developing more positive habits around money. And that for me was like a game changer in terms of running an organization and being responsible for the finances and the income and the expenditure. I think that's kind of when things started to kind of get moving a bit more. So what was the thing that changed then in terms of yeah, what was like the practical application from that shift in mindset that enabled you to triple the income? I think I was able to have more conversations about money and talk about it in a way that was, I mean, it took me, it still took me a long time. And I, I think the following year in 2016, I recruited another coach to kind of work with me on that. She was an embodiment coach. So she basically coached me from the perspective of the body. And I've since got into something called somatic experiencing, which goes much deeper. So it's about really kind of like getting to grips with or understanding like what your physiological response is to stuff. And I would have a physiological response to fundraising and to speaking to donors about money. So it did take a lot of work. And, you know, the, my big thing was just trying to get like a, a pool of donors who would donate a grand or more a year, which I'm sure for some people listening to this, you're like, I mean, that's nothing, right? But for me, that just felt so big. And now we have that and it feels very easy. But, you know, kind of eight years ago, that is not how it felt at all. So that was a big one. And then I think because I was able to deal with my anxiety around money, and I think a lot of it was to do with tracking and just having really good budget and cash flow so that you always knew where you were at at any one time. And you, I was constantly like updating, you know, not constantly, but I would sort of make it a practice each week to kind of check in with the finances and update the monthly actuals, you know, all of that stuff, which, you know, any bookkeepers out there, that probably sounds really obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me at the time. And I think probably if I could do anything differently, I would have hired a bookkeeper from the get-go because we still haven't hired a bookkeeper. I'm still doing that. We're about to hire a bookkeeper now, but it only just kind of like dawned on me this year. I was like, I'm spending so much of my time doing this and I've learned to be really good at it, but I'm still not anywhere near as good at this as a bookkeeper who's experienced in small charity finances. Like, what am I doing? So I think that really helped because once you can kind of, once you're able to kind of get control of your cash flow, then you can start to plan a bit more. And so that's kind of when the music education program started to sort of take off. But we were still in startup mode for like a good couple of years, probably up until about 2019, just trying things out. We ran with a, a primary school program for a while because it was a lot easier to get into primary schools than secondary schools. But then the issue with that was that we needed a certain type of educator in order to be able to deliver a successful primary school program. So we were like working with 30 primary school kids between like seven and 11. None of them had any kind of musical ability yet. They didn't play an instrument yet, nothing like that. So you need more of a workshop leader and someone who's experienced with working with kids with, you know, who might be neurodivergent, who might have suffered from abuse at home, who come from low income families, who might be hungry, you know, those sorts of things. Those, those, those are the kind of kids we were working with because that's what we had the funding. You know, we were specific about that with our, with our fundraising and with our funders. And of course, most musicians don't have those skills it's a really specific skill set so we have this amazing pool of musicians but 
not really many of them could do what we needed them to do in terms of this primary school setting. And, you know, that's kind of where the frustration came in because I was like, oh my gosh, if Abram were here, it would be so easy because he could lead it and just teach all these other musicians how to do it. But we don't really have that. And then we piloted a different type of program in 2018 called the project the project pilot was called future sound and that has since become our music education program like that's what it's called future sound it was a different kind of program where we went into a secondary school we started off in mossbourne community academy in hackney because they had a really vibrant music department but they ticked the boxes in terms of the type of young people that we wanted to work with And but because we were a small organization, we really needed to try and we needed to pilot this in a in a music department that would support us as opposed to a music department that like was non-existent. And in, I guess, on paper or in practice, in reality, probably needed the project more than Mossbourne did. But it was just too much of a risk with the funders to to pilot it in a school where we didn't feel confident that we'd get the support because, you know, that was a challenge back in 2018. It's even more of a challenge now uh, where, you know, schools are just so strapped for time and cash and resources, especially when it comes to music. So we piloted this new project uh, called Future Sound, where we basically took advantage of this amazing network of musicians, up-and-coming musicians that we had. We started with this band called Coco Rocco, who at the time, no one really knew about. Um, They're probably like one of the biggest selling jazz acts in the UK now. And they're like touring all over the world, but they were still very like up-and-coming at the time. And we got them just before they took off. And they went in for two months, every week for two months, and worked with these kids on their composition skills and their oral skills, their listening skills. So they didn't have to read music. That was a big thing. And then we had this big performance that kind of, yeah, showcased the work that they'd been doing over that two months and the music that they composed and the music that they'd learned from Coco Rocco. And it kind of introduced them to a different style of music, Afrobeat, jazz, a different way of learning music through listening as opposed to sort of more traditional Western forms of music. And we did this big performance at this venue that was also quite new around the corner called Church of Sound. It's They basically take over this church, they're, they're promoters who take over a church um, in Hackney, and it's within walking distance of the school, and none of these kids knew about it. So, And the, every four to six weeks, they were filling this church with like 400 people a lot of young people going to these jazz gigs really vibrant kind of community they've never had to advertise because they they kind of had this ready-made audience from the get-go and it's just such an incredible experience like if anyone's living in London and likes jazz I would definitely recommend Church of Sound in Hackney St James's Church not St John's Church that's where the memorial service was so yeah St James's Church I think Clapton Road anyway it was the kids were all a little bit not so sure, like, why are we going to a church? Don't really get it. But we set the whole gig up. So it was like a proper church of sound gig. And one of the things that's really special about it is it's all done in the round. So it's just an incredible experience. And we had like the kids from the school come as audience members and we had members of the community come. And so it was a full house and they were like rock stars. It was amazing. And then they also got to see their workshop leaders in inverted commas perform 
the kids who were participating in the project got to take a seat and actually just see their workshop leaders in action. And at the time, Poco Rocco's guitarist was this with this uh, musician called Oscar Jerome, who's also since become really big in his own right. And I just remember him like stepping up and taking this solo, and like the kids were just like. What? <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing and I think that's when we realized this is the project that we need to take forward like this is what we need to really kind of focus on and nurture and develop and grow so yeah so that's kind of been our big focus and then we've also piloted a career development program alongside that that started in the same year in 2018 so I've been mentoring informally up until that point and then uh, about 2016, recruited a new trustee who at the time was vice president of strategy at Sony Music, a guy called Fred Bolzer. He's since set up his own label called New Soil and he's managing a, a well-known DJ called Charles Peterson now and also a few other artists. So we basically together started piloting this career development program where we were working with up-and-coming musicians on coaching, I'm a certified coach, mentoring, and then strategy sessions, which Fred led on. And then we started to introduce masterclasses. And that was quite a good feeding ground for the Future Sound program. So we would kind of bring these musicians in and work with them over like a year, 18-month period. And then the ones that kind of seemed interested and engaged in the education work that we were doing, we would kind of involve them in that and get them to lead on projects. And So that ended up being quite a a useful feeder. So, yeah, so now we're in a situation where we've basically, we've uh, piloted uh, Future Sound in Manchester in partnership with the Co-op Academies Trust, and they love it. We pitched to them earlier this year to expand the programme into more of their schools, which they're kind of up for. And the great thing about working with an academy trust is that they have a central budget. So that's also helping us with the kind of fundraising side of things so that we're not so reliant on one-off project grants. So yeah, so that the expansion of that into the Northwest is, is going to be sort of a big focus for the next few years. Cool. So I know there's, there's the book that you've got coming out soon, which kind of tells some of the story and includes some interesting stuff there around like overcoming fear and and the sort of the bravery to to do things and and so I'd be interested in hearing the kind of yeah how some of the lessons you've learned over the last 10 years or so have kind of resulted in creating this book so I'd like to hear a little bit about that and then if we've got time I was going to ask you just a little bit about how you've built a team around you at the charity and then started to think about that kind of succession planning so that as a founder you can kind of step away from that main role so taking whichever order or say if if you've only got time for one just go maybe tell us about the book and then see if we've got time for the other thing yeah so I have a children's book called Becoming Brave coming out on the 3rd of August it's being published by Little Tiger Press they've been amazing and I've really loved working with them it's an autobiographical children's book so it's basically my life story in 50 sentences and it's been illustrated by this incredible up-and-coming illustrator called Tamika George who was uh, 19 when she signed the contract and from kind of conception to publication, the, the book's out on the 3rd of August and that's available wherever you buy your books. It's it's the whole process has taken about four years to get it out into the world. And the themes around that are fear, courage, hope, loss, 
love. And it was, you know, I, I don't know really how to explain this in a succinct way. So it's probably just easier if you if you get the book because that would be way more succinct. <laughs> great, great sales pitch. <laughs> I can't explain it, so just go and buy it. Just buy it. It's 50, it's 50 cents. It'll be over really quickly. But yeah, it's about me as a little girl. And this little girl loved to play, loved ideas, loved to tell stories, loved to be out in the world. And, and at the same time, there's this little boy over in your Orleans, who is doing all of those things too and loves playing the trumpet and living in this incredible jazz city and he continues with his passion and he continues to play trumpet and he becomes a musician and she doesn't because she realizes that all the adults around her are just really happy when she's good so she just tries really really hard to be really really good all the time to keep all the adults happy but it never seems to be enough And so she kind of grows up and I think loses a bit of herself along the way as a result of that until she meets this man called Abram, who is a trumpet player from New Orleans. And she falls in love with him instantly. And she wishes that she could be brave like him. And he's got all this passion and creativity and curiosity. And he's so brave and... And she wishes that she could be brave like him. And But she's still really scared. She's scared, scared to step out into the world, scared to, yeah, speak up, I suppose, and, and do the things that kind of within her and that she's longing to do, but she's sort of too frightened to look at them because she's scared that something might go wrong. And then one day it does and he dies and she's heartbroken and she doesn't know what to do with herself. But then she realises that now it's her turn to be brave And so that's kind of when she starts to sort of step into a different kind of place, I suppose, in her life and steps up and sets up this charity and starts to kind of do the things that she cares about and that she loves and that she's passionate about. And I think one of the things that really inspired me to write this book is the lesson that I learned in failing. I was always really, really scared to fail. And that's kind of what held me back for quite a lot of my life was was, was what would happen if I failed. And what I've learned since Abram died, not just through his passing, there's, you know, other things that kind of came into play, is that actually there is magic in failure and there is magic in things going wrong. And that is kind of where all the creativity often lies. Because if this thing hadn't gone wrong, if I hadn't got fired, for example, you know, It's like, what do you do with that failure? Because it opens doors to new things and new possibilities that just wouldn't have presented themselves if you hadn't failed or if something hadn't gone wrong. I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have published a children's book if Abram hadn't passed away, if the the thing that I feared the most, which was something awful happening to him, um, hadn't happened. So that's what the children's book is about. And so that kind of segues quite nicely into succession planning. So I have, I suppose by the time this comes out, I may no longer be like CEO of the Abram Wilson charity because I've made the decision to step down. It's been 11 years. It feels like a risk, but I think knowing what I know from when I was fired all those years ago is that, you know, sometimes you just need to jump off a cliff and trust that, that, you are going to catch yourself, (laughs) you know, that if you are clear about your intentions and you're clear about what you want to do and why you want to do it, that you will be okay. Like it will be okay. And I needed someone to push me off that cliff years and years ago because I wasn't brave enough to do it myself. And I thought I needed the safety net of a job. 
when in fact I didn't. So I'm making that choice myself and I'm leaving the organization in a, in a good place. And, you know, the trustees are really excited and keen and passionate to continue it and to find new leadership. And we've got some interim plans in the meantime. So yeah, it feels like the publication of this book is a really nice way to kind of round, round up the last 11 years and start a new chapter in my life. So I think, yeah, if you want to find out more about me, I'll have a website which will be published by the time this is out. It's jennycashman.com and you can sort of find out more about the book there, more about me, more about what I'm doing, what I'm up to. And yeah, I think like that's the book and I suppose me leaving in a nutshell, the succession planning, I mean, it's, that's, that's, I think that's for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But I think one of the things that I have learned through this process, we've been doing this massive strategic review this year, um, which, you know, has in part kind of led to my decision to step down. Um, And one of the things that I've learned is that I built a team around me. And I think if I had my time again, I would be much more strategic about how I built that team, because what ended up happening was that. I wasn't thinking long term about the team and the skill sets that I needed. And so I ended up doing head of finance job, a head of operations job, a head of programs job, and a head of fundraising job. And I wasn't really kind of allowing myself to properly step into that CEO role. That was a big lesson I think that I've learned that I would, you know, I'd make sure I'd be really careful about how I built a team going forwards and be really intentional about that. Oh, yeah, I think it's. Yeah, it's interesting as it? it comes back to that sort of bravery stuff, isn't it? So there are like so many steps along the way, like it's really brave to set up the organization. But then there's that kind of money mindset thing that holds you back. And then there's yeah, the way that you build a team and the way that you operate, as you say, like whether you really step into a CEO role and hire people around you or whether actually you're doing head of ops and head of finance and head of fundraising and things. So they're, they're like multiple multiple times you have to jump off that cliff aren't there in different ways along that journey i'm nodding Uh, a lot alex uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm nodding Uh, a lot yeah i completely agree Uh, yeah definitely plenty of stuff for me to reflect on when i listen back to this what i've seen of the book i have to say the the illustrations look really cool and my kids are getting a little bit older now but definitely if if you have young kids like reading along these kind of like stories where it's like you know, nice and brief on the narrative, really cool pictures, but like a really sort of meaningful message in there as well. It's just such a good way to really spend time with your kids. And then, you know, you kind of, you end up having some really special conversations by kind of, you know, reading through those things. And then they say, oh, well, I think that, or like, oh yeah, this, you know, they they kind of engage with the story and it enables you then to, maybe try and do some some quality parenting of trying to guide them a bit yeah and have those difficult conversations you know around you know I think so many kids do fear getting it wrong you know that is a culture that we live in it's not great for creativity it's not great for innovation you know and I, I would say that's so important when you're leading an organization is to create a culture where it's okay to get it wrong and it's okay for ha- people to have agency. But from very young, we're taught that that's not okay. So I think that's definitely like a big theme in the in the book, toxic perfectionism, and also loss. You know, th- you know, 
loss and grief and how you overcome that and that could be the loss of a family you know like my parents split up when I was a teenager you know that there is a grief connected to that too as well as you know people that you love passing away so yeah I think there's a lot in there to to just yeah to chat through with kids and the illustrations are beautiful and I'm just so excited for Tamika because we spent a year trying to find British illustrator of colour that was very important to us because the children's publishing sector is very still very white there's not a lot of diversity and so it was really important to me it was really important to my values to Abram's values and his legacy the values of of the charity the Abram Wilson charity to find an up-and-coming person of color from this country from the UK where this book could be like a stepping stone for that for their career she'd never done a children's book before and the design team um, a little tiger were amazing and mentored her for a year and a half so normally children's publishing I mean publishing takes forever it doesn't take four years like you know if we'd found somebody experienced you know they could have you know done some incredible illustrations in a few months and the book could have been out two years ago you know but we didn't have a deadline and I'm a great believer in you know things happening when they need to happen so we all just let go of it needing to come out at a certain time and just allowed it to kind of be what it needed to be and it was really important to me that that this person whoever they were going to be was going to get nurtured and mentored properly and could produce the best illustrations that she was able to and she has and it's beautiful and she's since gone on to be part of a new anthology an illustrator called Dapo Adeola who um, illustrated a book called Look Up amongst other things but that's the one that he's most known for at the moment and he basically put to curated this anthology of 40 black writers and authors from around the world and Tamika is in that and she was also commissioned by Royal Mail to design a stamp for 75 years of Windrush so you know I'm just really and she's she's been featured in um, the booksellers black publication their third black publication this this year in May 23 so you know it's just great for her and I'm so I'm and yeah like I say the illustrations are stunning so we will definitely share a link on the website to where people can find the book and also jennycashman.com. Try and dig out some of those books and things that you recommended if we can link to those. Are there any other sort of resources or well, things that you would recommend people check out if they're kind of running a charity or, or in, in those sort of positions? I do. I mean, oh, if you put me on the spot there, there are so many. No, that's but okay. Think, you mentioned a few, so I'll I'll try and yeah, dig I mean, those I out found, of the audio and put them on there. Yes, I. Yeah, the money mindset thing was a game changer for me. I think I've recently discovered this woman called Lisa Johnson. I think she's great, but it's less about charity stuff and more about kind of you know running an online business and strategy and building a team and you know but she's very clear and I think sometimes it's quite useful to get out of your sector and get into another sector and see how other people are doing things because actually running a charity is running a business it's just the way that you bring in the income is you know the sources of income are different right and you're not being profit driven you're you know, your kind of profit and in inverted commas is your impact. So, but yeah, I do find like seeing what people in those spaces, you know, the kind of online world of business quite helpful, especially as we've become so much more online since the pandemic. And coaching seems to be the other big thing that's been kind of there for you throughout that sort of process as well is, is benefiting from coaching. Yes, coaching. I've had how many coaches have I had? I had Ruth and then I had, I, I tried a few out 
before landing on this woman called Jo Heeson, which was who's an embodiment coach who was fantastic. And I, I saw her every month for six years. And then I've recently started with a new coach called Isabel Mortimer, who I met through a, a Claw Leadership course that I did a few years ago. Um, and I and I've done a few courses that she's she's led on, including my coaching course. So yeah, I, I just find having that monthly check-in. For me, it was it's always been monthly. I've never done it more than that just really really helpful because it can be a bit lonely at the top (laughs) so yeah I think that can help and I think in some of the larger organizations I think it's more common and and in some sectors like I think in like higher education it's pretty standard but like for small charities I think it's less common still so I think it's good thing for for people running smaller organizations to really think about that type of support as well as thinking about just having a training budget and going spending it on training courses thinking about coaching and different types of support like that yeah I would definitely recommend doing that if especially especially if you're a small charity and you're running a small charity because you're just flat out all the time and capacity is limited and just having that space that's you know once a month for an hour an hour and a half can be really helpful oh well thank you for your time we've gone just over an hour of chatting your dog's been incredibly well behaved without any interruptions thank you misty misty also features in the book at the end cool (laughs) have you got any any final thing you want to say to listeners at all no just thank you very much and thanks for having me and yeah i've um, enjoyed kind of reminiscing so yes thank you good yeah no problem it's been interesting to listen to and as i say i'll put those links on the website of people so they can look up and find out more thank you for listening to this episode of the charity impact podcast thank you for giving us your time and attention i know how precious a resource time is i hope you enjoyed the show if i could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day i'd love to hear from you you can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com slash charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter, just search Charity Impact Podcast, or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.